So last time we were together in our study through the entire Bible, we finished up the book of 1 Samuel. We saw that Saul had been a terrible king. He had disobeyed the Lord and his pride led not only to his downfall, but to the downfall of Israel that we saw there in that last chapter. So God raised up David to be the next king, and he was anointed when he was a teenager, and it would be many, many years before David would actually take the throne and officially be king. And during all those years, we saw how Saul hunted David down like an animal and tried to kill him. And David had to flee for his life for years and hide in caves and in the wilderness. And it was a very difficult time in his life. And uh, Saul's pursuit of David finally came to an end in the last chapter of 1 Samuel when Saul and three of his sons were killed on the same day in battle. And so we turn the page now to 2 Samuel chapter 1 and we pick up the story from there. Now, to help us get an overview of this book, uh, I can go ahead and tell you that the book of 2 Samuel can easily be divided up into two clear sections. Chapters 1 through 10 describe David's rise to power, and chapters 11 to 24, sadly, talk about David's downfall. And boy, I wish those chapters didn't have to be there. I wish they didn't take place, but they did, and they're for our benefit to learn from them. And so today we're going to look at chapters 1 through 10, and you can relax. Uh, we're, we're just going to do an overview of it, except for really one chapter in the middle there, chapter 7, we're going to dig into. Uh, and then next Sunday, God willing, we'll look at chapters 11 to 24. And then the Sunday after that is Easter already, Resurrection Sunday. So this year's moving along at a pretty good pace. Well, if I had to summarize the entire book of 2 Samuel, I believe there's one verse that could sum it all up perfectly. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. And it says this, Now therefore you are to tell my servant David that this is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And that verse not only describes David's rise to power and what, what brought about his rise to power in chapters 1 through 10, but sadly, it also helps us see just how tragic his downfall will be in chapters 11 to 24. Well, as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 1, it's important for us to know that David isn't yet aware that Saul and his sons have been killed. The battle is taking place in a different part of the country than where David had been. And David finds out about the death of Saul and Jonathan and his other two boys in a very unusual way. And we see this unfolding in chapter 1. There's this man who, who approaches David and his clothes are torn and he's got dirt on his head, dust on his head. And this is a picture back then and still in some of those places today in the Middle East. It's a picture of mourning. It means someone has died. And so David knows that this is not good news coming. But this man approaches him and he says to, to David, uh, kind of bows down before him and he says, uh, you know, I've just come from the battle and, uh, and I came to tell you that Israel's troops have been defeated and also... Saul and his sons are dead. And he goes on to claim that he was the one who killed King Saul. 
even though we know from the last time we were together, 1 Samuel chapter 31 tells us that Saul fell on his own sword and committed suicide, killed himself in battle. That's what the previous chapter has just told us. So this guy was clearly there at the battle because he has Saul's crown and his armband. And he comes to David knowing that Saul had been persecuting David for years and that David was going to be the next king. He comes to David now claiming that he was the one who took care of Saul and he thinks in his mind, and we get a glimpse of this a little bit later in, um, I think it's chapter 4, he's thinking, man, I'm going to be handsomely rewarded for this. David is going to be thrilled that I took care of his enemy, Saul. Well, David has a very different response. Verse 11, verse 11 and 12, 2 Samuel 1. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. This is remarkable. David is utterly heartbroken at the news that Saul and his sons are dead, even though Saul is the one who had tried to kill him for years. Saul was an awful king. He was filled with rage and jealousy towards David, but David never once wanted to take revenge on Saul. As I told you, he had two opportunities to kill Saul. And he said, far be it from me to lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. You know, David saw this situation with with really spiritual eyes. He had to turn off his physical desires, I'm sure, to take revenge on Saul and to end all this and to become king himself. He said, man, listen, God's plan is bigger than my plan. I'm not going to try to force my hand here and and make myself become king sooner. God's timing will work out. I'm going to trust God. And even though this guy has been trying to kill me, I will not lay a finger on him. So David is just heartbroken over this news. And again, this shows the amazing heart that he had. The Bible has told us several times now that David was a man after God's own heart. And we see this from God. God has shown through Scripture when Christ came, he was hated, he was despised by people, and yet Jesus wept over those very people who would later demand his death. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who despitefully use you. That's easier said than done. But David is a beautiful example of of that. I pointed out to you last time that Saul died because of his unfaithfulness to the Lord and also because he did not inquire of the Lord. It uses those exact words. He did not inquire of the Lord. In other words, in our language, he did not seek the Lord's direction. And he was put to death for that because he was the king. And all leaders, if they're truly following God, leadership is not a matter of power. It's a matter of surrender as they lead the people. Saul didn't do that. And when we come to chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, the huge contrast between Saul and David becomes even more clear. Because the very first thing David did here, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. 
So David is off to a great start. He's seeking the Lord's direction. And God says to him, I'm ready for the next chapter in your life. I want you to leave where you are, and I want you to go to Hebron. Now, Hebron means nothing to us, really, but it was a very, very important place in, uh, in the life of Israel. Hebron was the place where Abram first built an altar to the Lord when the Lord showed him all of the land that was going to belong to him and his descendants. That was Hebron. Hebron is also the place where Abram's wife Sarah was buried. Abraham was also buried there along with Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah and so on. Uh, it was one of the cities of refuge. Uh, it was the land that was given to Caleb as an inheritance. It was a very important place, a place of great significance. So David goes off to Hebron. Verse 4 of chapter 2. And the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So now, after all these years that David has waited, he's finally made king. But it's important to know that he's only anointed as king over Judah, which is the southern portion of the land. Now, I've got a map there, I think, to hopefully you can see some of that. Now, God promised to make David king over both those areas, the orange and the blue area. The top area, the blue, is Israel. The bottom is Judah. But right now, David is only king over the lower orange portion. So he still has to wait even longer to become king of Israel as God has promised. He still has to wait years more before he sees God's promise come to fulfillment. And I encourage us all again, as I have many times before, we don't like waiting. I certainly don't. I've confessed that to you. I don't, I don't like waiting. But folks, there are times, in fact, I would say more often than not in our life, as we follow Christ, he will make us wait for his will and his plan in our life to unfold. And sometimes it is agonizing. And sometimes, I can't speak for you, but sometimes I try to short-circuit that process and say, come on, let's go, you know? We've got to get this moving. And I look back so often and see, Phil, you weren't even close to being ready, to being entrusted with what God was going to give to you next and ask you to do next. So God has to keep us in that uh, that uh, classroom of waiting so often, and David is here again. So now this is the second time he's been anointed. The first time was really a private ceremony with his family. He's waited all these years now, and now he's anointed king, but only over Judah for now. And something happens in chapter 3 that seems to totally dis de de derail this promise that David will ever be king over all of Israel. As I mentioned, three of Saul's sons had been killed with him in battle, but Saul had a fourth son whose name I just, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, uh, because it's kind of like saying that she sells seashells on the seashore. His name was Ishbosheth. I got it. Don't ask me to repeat that. So he, he had a fourth son. And when David was made king in Judah, some of Saul's men who were still around, they got together and they said, hey, we've got a great plan. Let's take Ishbosheth and let's make him king over Israel. The Bible tells us that when this happened, it sparked a civil war. Now remember, all of the people in Judah and Israel, they're all God's people. They're all supposed to be living in harmony with one another. And here they are clashing. And chapter 3, verse 1 says, now there was a long war 
between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And we're told later that the reason this happened is because God was with David. This had nothing to do with David's skill or brilliance. God had chosen David to be the next king, and God was with him in these battles. And God caused Saul's household to diminish over time, and David became greater and greater. And sadly, the rest of chapter 3 is filled with war and betrayal and bloodshed. It's just a mess. When you stop and think, as I said, that these are God's people, and you see what they're doing to themselves. And this continues on into chapter 4 with the grisly murder of Ishbosheth. There were two men who snuck into his house and murdered him in his sleep. And just like the guy in chapter 1, they go running to David. And they think they're going to be bringing him good news because, again, Ishbosheth is the guy who's preventing David from being king over all Israel. So these two guys go running to David and say, man, we got great news for you. In fact, it's really grisly. They, they bring his head to David. And they say, look, man, we got him. And they're thinking, boy, are we going to get rewarded? We're going to get a special place in his military for this. And David is furious when he hears this news. And again, you'd think he would be thrilled because this opened the way for him to take the throne of Israel. But this is not the way he wants to go about it. See, as I said, all this time, David had patiently waited for God's timing rather than trying to force his own way to the throne. And there's such a great, uh, great lesson in that. Well, come to chapter 5. And behind the scenes, most of the people in the northern portion there in Israel, they really did want David to lead them. So after Ishbosheth was gone, they knew that their, their number was up. And so here's what they did. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3. It says, Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. Now remember, he was a teenager when he was first told that he would be king. He's now 30 years old. Verse 5. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So after all that patient waiting on the Lord's timing, David is finally king over all Israel. And his first act we see in this chapter is to conquer the city of Jerusalem and to set up the capital there. Again, we could talk for so long about just that and how significant that event was. Because to this day, that little section of land is the most contested piece of real estate on the planet. Little bitty Jerusalem. Why is there so much focus on the news around the world about this little place of Israel, this little place of Jerusalem? Still today, people are still fighting over it. Do I have to explain why? Because the Bible is true in what it's telling us about history. And so David sets up the capital in Jerusalem, which is a great thing, but there's still, there's still one piece missing. The Ark of the Covenant is not there. And the Ark of the Covenant is the place where, if we remember back to 
uh, our earlier books that we studied through, it's the place where the presence of God dwelt at that time in history. And we saw back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, no, chapters 2, 3, and 4 there, where the Ark of the Covenant was captured by an enemy. They put it in their pagan temple, and then they got struck with plagues, and they got sick of it, and so they sent it back. And the Ark ended up being stuck in some guy's house and just forgotten. And it stayed there for decades. Again, wow, there's so much we could talk about. They're just going on living without the presence of God. And so the ark of God had been out of sight and out of its rightful place for a very long time. And in chapter 6, David does a wonderful thing. He brings the ark to Jerusalem and he puts it in the place that God has designated it to be. And this was a very good thing that David did. But unfortunately, listen, David did a good thing. But he did it in the wrong way. God had said that whenever the Ark of the Covenant was moved, it had to be carried by the priests, by the Levites, on their shoulder with poles. Those wooden poles that went through the rings on either side of the Ark. That was the only way the Ark could be carried. And we might sit here and debate over that and go, oh, what nonsense, what's the point? No, the bigger point is that what God says must happen must happen. If God says, stand on your head in the corner and wiggle your ears, that's his word and we need to do it. This seems like a minor thing, but it's huge and it has huge implications in our life as well. Because David and these people, while they were doing a noble thing to bring the ark back, they said, hey, let's just put it on a cart. Well, they they got a new cart. You know, they probably said, oh, hey... We're just going to stick it on a car, but let's get a new car because that, that's probably better. You know, we want to honor God. And I'm sure they thought, oh, well, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3 and 4, uh, back there when the Philistines stole the ark, they sent it back on a cart. So I, I'm sure it'll be fine if we just behave like the Philistines. Now, remember, the ark represented the presence of God and the glory of God. And their casual approach to this reveals something significant. It reveals a lack of reverence for God. It reveals a lack of fear for God. Fear for God. Yes, this chapter tells us they were celebrating and rejoicing that the ark was coming back, but none of that mattered because they were not obeying God's commands. They were treating them casually. So what did God do? God had to give them a stern warning. He had to give them a stern reminder that his holiness and judgments are not to be taken lightly. And so as the ark is being pulled along, one of the oxen stumbles. And it looks as though the ark is going to fall. So this man named Uzzah reaches out and he grabs hold of the ark to stop it. And God strikes him dead. Now boy, you want to talk about an area of debate. Some people fly off the handle at God. As a matter of fact, this chapter tells us that David did. David became really angry. And listen, I understand. In that moment, I understand. David cried out to God, Lord, what have you done? Why? He was just trying to protect the ark. And God is saying, I don't need you to protect me. I need you to obey me. And you see, the thing is, if they had followed God's commands in the first place, none of this would have happened. And so we mustn't get the story backwards here. We mustn't point the blame in the wrong direction. 
We must remember we serve a holy, awesome, powerful, fearsome God whose judgments are just as real as his love. And he's not to be trifled with. These people disobeyed in a seemingly small way, but it led to tragedy. And folks, we so often do the same thing. We disobey God in some way and we think it's not a big deal. And then we get angry at him when his judgment falls. Shame on us. We should never assume that we can ignore God's commands and and not suffer the consequences. Well, the Israelites definitely learned their lesson from this. And so they ended up sticking the ark in a house again for three months, but they came to their senses and David said, look, let's do this right. We've got we've to follow God's directions here. And so it says that the, the priests took the ark on poles and, and after they took six steps, they stopped and they, they uh, made an offering to the Lord. And they took six steps and they stopped and made an offering. Like they're doing overkill now. Man, every six steps stop, just we've got to be careful. And the rest of chapter 6 is all about that and, and how David was so excited that the ark, the presence of God, was coming to Jerusalem that he, uh, he went out and he danced wildly in the streets. He's the king. And he just danced like a madman in the streets. And boy, did he get in trouble with his wife when he got home that night. She was angry at him. She said, how dare you debase yourself in front of the people like that? Well... All I can say is if I ever danced in public, I'd get in trouble with my wife as well. (laughs) Because there are people like me should never dance in public. So maybe David and I are in the same category. Well, we're going to skip chapter 7 for just a moment. We'll come back to that. Because uh, it's really the key chapter to this entire book. In chapter 8, David defeats more enemies. And every time he did this, his territory expanded. His kingdom grew larger. His power increased In chapter 9, we get another glimpse of David's kindness and generosity. I love this. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's remarkable. Now remember, Jonathan was Saul's son who had been killed in battle. Jonathan was also, he had also been David's best friend. Well, Jonathan had had a son with another tough name. I don't know why they just don't call these people Ralph or Fred, but Jonathan's son was named Mephibosheth. Those of you expecting, tuck that one away. (laughs) And Mephibosheth, when he was a boy, uh, as the enemy was attacking, the Israelites were fleeing their homes, and the nurse grabbed young Mephibosheth in her arms and was running from the enemy, and she dropped him. And he became crippled in both his feet. So when David heard about this, he brought... Jonathan's son, he sent word, he said, bring him to me. And he brought Jonathan's son into his palace. And he said, you're going to eat at my table. And David treated him as one of his own sons. So here we are years later. David is still trying to show kindness to the descendants of Saul. It's a beautiful picture of his compassionate heart. And as I've said a number of times, David is a picture, a foreshadowing of Christ who will come. And we see so many lessons in this, in how Christ loves those of us who are broken. Chapter 10 is all about more wars being fought and David's kingdom expanding even further. And you can dig into all those details uh, at your own leisure. 
But I want to return now to chapter 7, and I want to close out our time there because, as I said, chapter 7 is not only, what would you say, well, just a key chapter. It's, it's not only a key chapter in this book, but it's really a key chapter in the entire Bible, in the entire story of redemption. This is a key chapter. And there's far too much here for us to expand on in this time this morning. But, and this is, this is such important material. Uh, I just, I pray I will not do this injustice. It's so important what we're going to see here. It has eternal consequences for God's kingdom and for all of us who believe in Christ. Well, let's, let's look at this. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. Now that was a term that if you lived in a, a house of cedar, like that was top notch. That was lifestyles of the rich and famous. Okay? I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside a tent. And it really bothered David. Who, who didn't even have to pay attention to this, but again, he has a heart for God. And it really bothered him that he was living in the lap of luxury while he looked out the window and he saw that God's presence was confined to a tent. And out of his great love for God, he wanted desperately to build a majestic palace for God. It's such a noble gesture. But in a really interesting twist... God answers David through Nathan the prophet, and he says, David, buddy, I, I don't need you to build me a house. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do something different. I am going to build a house for you. Now here, when God says that, he's not talking about a physical house. The word is household. It's lineage. And so God says, it's me who's going to build something very special for you. Verse 8. Now, therefore, you are to tell my servant, David, that this is what the Lord of hosts says. And this is the verse we saw earlier. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. What a beautiful picture that is. David, little boy, out tending the smelly sheep. God saw he had a heart for him. He said, David, remember, remember, I'm the one who took you from the smelly sheepfold and made you king over Israel. Verse 9. <laughs> And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, underline that word, plant them so that they may dwell in a place of their own and be disturbed no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Again, that's household, it's lineage, it's legacy. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Throughout the Old Testament, God constantly points his people back 
to the promises he made in the past, to the things that he's done for them in the past. And then he points them forward to remind them of how his promises are going to be fulfilled. And that's what God is doing here. These words God spoke to David, they, they point back to what God has done in the past. But they also point forward to how God is going to establish his kingdom forever. And God has promised that he's going to do this in the past. Long ago, here's one example. Exodus chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. This is centuries before. You will bring them in. This is someone speaking of what God is going to do. You will bring them in and plant them. There's that term, plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. That's key. Now, as we... As we read that promise from way back in Exodus, and then we see what we've looked at in the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel now, years later, we could easily say, well, all that's been done because God has planted his people in the promised land. He's placed David on the throne. He's given them peace from their enemies. But that is by no means the end of the promise because it concludes by saying, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Which tells us there's a whole lot more to come. When David looked around at this point in history, everything seemed to be fine. All of God's promises to him had now been fulfilled. But God is reminding David of an important truth that you and I need to be reminded of so often, and that is, that even when we are enjoying the best that this world has to offer, it's not the fulfillment of God's promise to us. The best is yet to come. God has far greater things in store. That's why we must never plant our hope in this world. We must never plant our hope in this life. Because the kingdoms of earth are temporary. They're all going to crumble and fall. But the kingdom of God will last forever. As we look at the details of this story, we, we can see that there is a king already in place, David. But there is a greater king coming. The people are living in the land already, as I said, but there is a greater land coming. The people are enjoying peace. Verse 1 of chapter 7 tells us that. But that peace will only last for a short while. There's a greater peace coming. Do you hear what I'm saying to you this morning? Yes, Israel was blessed beyond belief to have a king like David. But David will fall, as we'll see next week. We cannot put our hope in anyone on this earth. David fell because he, like all of us, was unable to live up to the perfect law of God. We're all in the same boat. And so Israel must remember that while David is a great king who can free them from their surrounding enemies, he cannot free them from their greatest adversary, sin. And folks, that's the greatest need we all have. 
And as the mighty king David falls, rather than being disappointed in him, it should be a reminder to the people of their desperate need for a greater king who would one day come. One who will meet God's perfect standard of righteousness and will finally conquer sin and death and Satan forever. Forever. And that king is Jesus. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a key link in God's unfolding plan of redemption because we mustn't miss this. It says that David's throne will last forever, but it also tells us that David himself will not live forever. So in order for David's throne to last forever, that means one of David's descendants must be the one king who will never die. And that one is Jesus. All of what this is saying here is pointing us ahead to the one who will come, to the great king who will come, whose kingdom will last forever. So this chapter connects for all time the line of David to the line of Jesus. This is the very thing that the New Testament uses as evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Because the Jews knew that the real Savior, the real Messiah, had to come from the line of David. As a matter of fact, the New Testament opens with this. If I were writing a book, if I were writing the New Testament, I would open with some some bang, some big thing of excitement to capture people's attention. The New Testament opens in a seemingly boring way. But it's so important to everything that will follow. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And even right up to the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus is still linked to David. Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Why? Why, after all the trouble and turmoil that we see in Revelation, why would Jesus want to send that particular message to us, the church? Listen, it's to remind us that when the dust settles and the smoke clears and when it's all over, Jesus will be the one who is still standing because he is the true Savior who came from the line of David and his kingdom will stand forever. He is the one who was promised of old, the Savior of the world, and the only one through whom we can have access into that eternal kingdom. So how does all this affect us? How does this shape our lives for today? Well, with the condition this world is in right now, with the condition our country is in right now, with the condition our government is in right now, and folks, I'm telling you, we are at step one. It's going to get bad. It's going to get bad. If the filibuster is done away with, we are done. You understand that? H.R. 1 passes, we're done. We are done. This country is this far from stepping off the edge of the cliff into socialism. 
And it boggles my mind that more people aren't waking up to this. Sorry, I didn't mean to get into that, but I'm just past my point of patience with all of this nonsense in the world today. It's driving me crazy. But I know it must happen. I know it must. With the condition that the world is in right now, we should take great comfort and hope from this chapter. Whatever may happen today, whatever may happen tomorrow, whatever may happen years from now in the kingdoms of this world, you and I can be assured that God will bring his great plan of salvation through Christ to completion. And if we are in Christ, then as we watch the kingdoms of this world crumble, we can know for certain that we are part of the kingdom that will last forever. And we have a king who will reign in righteousness and truth for all time. I don't know about you, but that's good news to my ears. After all this bad news, that's good news. That's good news. And we need to remind each other of this often because we are prone to forget. The Israelites forgot. Long after David's earthly kingdom had faded and gone from the scene, the people were weary and they were wondering when God's promise would ever finally be completely fulfilled. And the prophet Isaiah reminded them by pointing them back to what God established right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I close with these two verses. We know these, but listen to them. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And here it is. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Praise God. Praise God. May we always remember, folks, may we always remember in the madness of this world, there's a better king coming who will set everything in order with his judgment and justice and he will reign in righteousness forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it seems obvious to us Maybe seems unnecessary to say it, but we just admit it again. We desperately need you. We desperately need you. Lord, we, we've seen this past year what can unfold when things are done without you. And it's very dark. So God, we cry out to you. We confess that we do not put our confidence in the kingdoms of this world. They will all fail. They will all fall. They will all disappear. I thank you for this reminder from such an odd place in your word today. But there it is, right in the middle of this story, how you established your everlasting covenant with David. And you said that even though David is going to die and rest with his fathers, there's one who's coming who will take the throne of David, who will live forever. And he will reign in justice and judgment and righteousness and truth for all time. 
And so it's in that king that we put our trust. It's in him that we put our faith and all our hope. I pray, God, you would help us, you would empower us by your spirit that when times get difficult, as they are going to, that we would keep our eyes on that king, that our allegiance would forever be to his kingdom, that our citizenship would forever be in that country that is yet to come. We thank you, God. We thank you for establishing this and not leaving us here in this world on our own. We thank you that there's more to come. And we thank you that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see